welcome to the Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discussed the horror of the mundane, chatted about the Whitney Biennial, and learned about Chicago's ambitious river plans. All this plus size matters, Are We Cool Yet?, and the Trump Diaries, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for March 15, 2019. Jamie Trecker and John Daly spoke to James Burns of the South Branch PAC about their ambitious plans to expand the park that contains the Eleanor Boathouse. Burns and his colleagues discussed the creation of connected riverfront parks, urban development along the Chicago River, and the progress they have made. Radio Free Bridgeport airs every Tuesday, drive time. And today I am joined by James and Chloe. They are from the South Branch Pack. They're going to be talking to us about things going on in our neighborhood on the Chicago River and the Eleanor Boathouse. Guys, welcome. Thanks for making time. Thanks, Jamie. Great to be here. So you guys actually, let's start from the very beginning. You guys actually have a meeting tomorrow, am I correct, where you guys are going to be planning, uh, excuse me, unveiling a plan for the expansion of the use of the Chicago River in our neighborhood. Yeah, so uh, let me start at the beginning, Jamie. First, thanks again. Uh, It's been a little while since we've been here, but really great. And and on this momentous uh, occasion, I guess I can say, so the, the Park Advisory Council, PAC for short, some mm-hmm. people want to confuse that with like a political action committee. There's no politics There's here. no <laughs> politics here. We keep this straight and narrow. Uh, so we were formed several years ago, uh, and we're interested in programming that happens at Park 571 and the Eleanor Street Boathouse. Uh, but we also are the stewards of a few other parks that are located along the south branch of the Chicago River. So along with Park 571, which is on uh, the east side of Bubbly Creek as it meets the south branch of the river, we also look after Canal Origins Park, which is just west of Bubbly Creek there, and then Canal Port Riverwalk. And uh, we meet on a regular basis, and actually uh, tomorrow at 6.30 at the uh, Eleanor Street Boathouse is our regularly scheduled meeting, and we'll be talking about this framework plan that was just released uh, actually on March 1st. Uh, and this was about a year and a half of hard work uh, through many, many partners, uh, and most importantly through input provided by the community. So we're really excited. And uh, Chloe, with her role through the Metropolitan Planning Council, is actually the genesis of a lot of the work that that we're currently doing uh, along the South Branch of the Chicago River and, and MPC uh, for short. Um, mm-hmm. They uh, they really got this ball rolling several years ago with the Our Great Rivers um, program. That was something that kind of came out of the mayor's office and uh, now is really entering the second phase, I would argue, with all of these different plans and people like us, community groups who are rooted in the community, community-based and community-led, are taking the baton mm-hmm. and, and running with it. So just to back up a little bit for, for folks that don't know, Park 571 is where the Eleanor Boathouse is. That's a, that's about two years old now, am I correct? Yeah, it, the, seems uh, long, it seems shorter than that, but it's been <laughs> around for a while. Yeah, yeah, I know. And Jamie, I have an almost two-year-old daughter now, so time is like very yeah. confusing <laughs> to me now. Um, the, uh, the boathouse itself... Ribbon cutting was December 6th of 2016, or December oh, 4th of December 16th, yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, so it's been open about two and a half years, just over two years, I guess. Um, and the Park Advisory Council has been, uh, first we were in the Duck Inn, which was right around the corner, right. uh, because before before the boathouse was built and therefore needed a home, and, and Kevin was there for us yep. to give us shelter. Um, and we've been operating out of the boathouse ever since. Uh, so it's it's been a, a wild two years plus, and uh, I think that the, the best is still uh, ahead of us for sure. And before we get into kind of what you guys are talking about for the roadmap going forward, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what goes on at the boathouse? Because I think people are still uh, 
I know it's it's picked up in the neighborhood, but I think people outside the neighborhood who might be listening to us don't have an idea of the kind of programs you guys offer there. And it's it's really a great space. I mean, we should say that it's it's a beautiful space, wonderful architecture. I believe Studio Gang did that. Didn't That's they? right. Yeah, Gene Gang. So uh, it's it's right on the Chicago River. Um, if you guys know Bridgeport at all, it's kind of uh, between where Loomis crosses over the river and where Ashland is, uh, just before Cermak. The Duck Inn, of course, is just before Loomis. Uh, it's down uh, to the left there uh, before you guys would get to Ashland if the river wasn't there. Uh, and it's it's right on the river. It's a very picturesque location. What what kind of programs are you guys, or or is the Boathouse programming, you know, with your input as well? Yeah, Jamie, I just want to also uh, add on to that beautiful picture that you were painting. If you are on Ashland Avenue and you look to the east, so towards downtown, towards the lake, um, right as you are either coming up to the bridge or on the bridge, you will see right there the boathouse. A lot of people are like, oh my gosh, what is that? I never saw it. It's Especially if the sun is coming down, it has this yeah. very unique structure to it. It's got these big glass windows that overlook the river. Uh, really a picturesque building. Uh, and you know it was, it was several million dollars. And like you said, Studio Gang, uh, world-renowned architecture firm, and, and Jeannie Gang, the foremost female architect in the world, arguably. Uh, it, really something to see. Um, so as far as the programming is concerned, I think that there's two different things, Jamie. Uh, one is what the Park Advisory Council does. Uh, we try to host events about every quarter. So uh, last October, actually, we had about 200 plus people come out and uh, take a pumpkin away for Halloween, mm-hmm. uh, which was a ton of fun. We had a lot of babies out there, which was uh, like astonishing to me. Um, Especially but, in Bridgeport. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, we do things like that. We also have an annual boat party where mm-hmm. we coordinate with uh, some of the local rowing organizations in the park district and some of our partners we bring some food out the duck and came out and had some chicago style hot dogs last year uh, and we just have an opportunity for people to come together it's a community gathering and try to do some different things the police marine unit was out there last year uh, just fun activities like that in the morning couple hours on a saturday when it's warm outside um the park district side is a little bit different than what the park advisory council does mm-hmm. of course we're always working in unison though uh the The park district actually has some of your typical programming you'd find at uh, a Chicago park district. So Mm -hmm. there's row, I'm sorry, yoga. There's Mm -hmm. also fitness classes. Um, and they have day camp as well. So kids can go there for six weeks during the summertime, the same as I did back in the mid nineties. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, in addition to that, there are five rowing organizations that call the boathouse home. Mm -hmm. Now, for anybody who doesn't know, it's called the boathouse literally because there are two structures. The one structure is literally a garage, let's say, and boats are stored in this enormous building. And these boats are crewing boats, which can be up to, I don't know, a foot uh, length, but uh, they're really long, right? They can be as long as a bus. Yeah, they're Um, as long as a semi. Yeah. Yeah. I was was told. Okay, there we go. Um, Chloe and I are not really rowers. Uh, But (laughs) the the five rowing organizations are uh, ROW, which is short for Recovery on Water, uh, which is a breast cancer survivor group, I I know you know. Um, Also, CTC Chicago Training Center, which uh, provides programming to uh, youth here in the city of Chicago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then University of Chicago Crew, Lincoln Park Boat Club, and St. Ignatius's Rowing oh, right. Club. Uh, so those five groups operate out of the boathouse on a, a year, year-round basis. Uh, they've been at Park 571 for years before the boathouse was actually built. Uh, so for them, they finally have a warm place to go and use the washroom when they're uh, on the, the river, yeah. uh, pitch black 5 a.m. practicing for, for yeah, whatever. Yeah. For uh, crew, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, that's I think that's kind of the boathouse in a nutshell. Um and the, the Park Advisory Council, we're 
we're there to be a liaison between the community and the park district and these rowing organizations right. um, because we want to make sure that the people who live on Eleanor Street right there, right? The boathouse is at 2828 South Eleanor. We want those people to be properly represented. If they want some sort of class at the boathouse, we want to make sure that the park district is aware of that and that they're trying to do the things that they can in order to meet the wants and the needs of the local community. Right, because it is right in a residential neighborhood, and we should—I should mention that if you are looking for more information about the organizations that James and Chloe are talking about, you can look on the Park District website. Uh, you guys have a website as well. I don't know if it has the information about Row or, or those groups on it. I know the Chicago Parks District does, and you can just look on the city's website, and you can you can find that out. But we, that is another important point because it is smack in the middle of some new development as well as uh, some existing houses. Was there any tension in the community at all when the boathouse went up? In the first place or is that something that your group actually was formed to kind of address so there was a little bit of tension and my intention when i formed the group jamie was not to address this tension i didn't know that the tension existed until i kind of got on the scene <laughs> okay. um and there was a I, i've told this story several times but we had a public meeting at lozano library and um there were maybe eight or ten neighbors who lived on Eleanor Street, mm-hmm. you know, right across the street from where the, the eventual boathouse was going to stand. And they were kind of looking at me funny, saying, who are you and what took you so long to come and talk to us about this boathouse and this, this huge thing that's going to happen in our community? And uh, it soon dawned on me that there wasn't a lot of communication between uh, you know, the institutions that were responsible for building the boathouse and the folks that had called Eleanor Street home for decades, generations. Right. I mean, we're talking about there may be 10 or 12 families that live on that block of Eleanor Street uh, that own, you know, the, the two and a half dozen homes that are there. Uh, and it was a really quiet piece of land in Bridgeport. And this boathouse is coming in and not only is this building going up, but it is going to be something that people flock to from around the city and, and even the suburbs. Of course, yeah. uh, so right away, I wanted to calm those fears. Uh, and the first question I could say was, okay, we have this thing happening. And as community members and as people who are responsible for you know the tax dollars that are, are going to help build this thing, let's tell them what we want. People looked at me like I had three heads because how do you tell people who view the river as an industrial artery or something you more or less stayed away from? And I speak from experience as a kid who grew up on the north branch of the river. We would go down there and throw rocks at rats and smoke cigarettes, right? We weren't doing anything wholesome when we were hanging out on the river. And I think a lot of people had that perspective of the river. And we needed to kind of give some structure around what the river could be for people who live on Eleanor Street and other parts of the city. Um, We usually turn our back to the Chicago River, but over the past five, ten years, it seems as if people are really, uh, you know, getting on board with this notion that this can be a recreational amenity. You can exercise uh, on it if you're in a boat, right? You can exercise alongside it. It can be an economic engine. We see what the river walk has done in just a few short years. I mean, it's jam-packed on a nice evening in in July or August. And we want to bring that to the neighborhood, right? And and trying to vision or envision that with people who it was totally foreign to them uh, as recently as three years ago. Um, It was a tough challenge, but I think that people are finally beginning to see the value.
Nancy Clem chatted with Trinity Pierce, a nature steward in Chicago who works with children on land restoration projects. Pierce spoke about how her love of nature came from her childhood, how powerful even urban ecosystems can be, and why restoration is so important. Spontaneous Vegetation now airs every second and fourth Sunday at 5 p.m. So you grew up and currently live in Oak Park, but you also spent childhood summers in the small town of Prairie Farm, which is a seven and a half hour drive north of Chicago in the Chippewa area of Northwest Wisconsin. I was hoping you would share more about how your family spent time in both places and how this rural urban living has shaped uh, what you do today. Absolutely. So growing up in Oak Park, had the great opportunity of a peri-urban environment. So we weren't quite as full of concrete as possibly a downtown neighborhood. We had bits and pieces here, but going to Wisconsin, it was another world. There was a enticing yet frightening bog as part of the farm <laughs> area. There was timber as far as the eye could see, and a good 10 feet at least on either side of the long traditional road leading up to the farmhouse full of wildflowers and worlds of their own and going there was unlike anything else I was used to from back home. And you started going when you were really young? Yes, as early as I can remember that's where I learned to drive up and down that lane. How old? Well that's a good question. Around 10? Right. Maybe younger? Yeah. (laughs) So uh, it was just memory of trees or memory of just that feeling of ease and calm, passing the cornfields, and just the utter peace, just the calm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you would uh, jump on back to Oak Park and get into the school year, right? Yes, and I don't think I realized until looking back how jarring that transition would be because it felt so much more like home. It felt like there was so much more potential. Just hours would melt away. Time didn't have as much of an urgency. Uh, Mm -hmm. Growing up playing sports, which I appreciate, or 
in band, being able to sing, wonderful opportunities, but so much of the time being segmented out on the farm, there was just such a different way to experience life. Yeah. And you did that through high school? Yes. Visits? Yes, absolutely. And it was only recently sold out of our family a few years ago with the passing of my grandfather, Bestafar. My mom's side is 100% Norwegian. So. Oh. <laughs> but thankfully, it passed to dairy farmers' neighbors who are as close to family as you can have. So it would still be possible for me to visit. We have family who are buried in a small cemetery in the area as well. So very much still a strong connection yeah. to the land. So you're going through just the trials and tribulations of junior high, high school. You get to escape it in the summers. <laughs> 400 people of, of Prairie Farm and um, come back. When did you start realizing that you would be interested in were, interested in restoration? When did you discover um, restoration? And I'm kind of also curious in how you define it. Absolutely. Fascinatingly to me, it was just at the end or after undergrad. So I went through the whole liberal arts, fortunate to have the financial, financial security, the higher education of my parents, of my grandparents, that undergrad was something that I was going to do, and uh -huh. liberal arts was the route. I was not wielding you know, paintbrush and palette at age seven, or I yeah. wasn't kind of, oh, she's going to do this. It was unclear. I was very much a space cadet. Who knows what I was doing, but I was just figuring things out, making associations with the natural world around. So it was end of undergrad, turning my history major, realizing more and more I wanted to understand how did we come to this? How has our relationship with the land adjusted? Why was it industrial revolution, not green revolution? Fascinating to think we are part of these ecosystems, but so much of our interaction has been detrimental we have degraded it. How can we be positive aspects of this? And so I was coming to this realization, but well, how am I going to, I've just come through undergrad and I was so fortunate to find, excited to find a landscape architecture program with the University of Michigan with an ecology focus. So I could do the three years and not a traditional two-year master's and really appreciated it. That's where it really blossomed because you had access to wonderful experts, wonderful teachers, wonderful organizations, resources, uh -huh. all in the Midwest, which for me is absolutely home, Wisconsin, Michigan. So that was exciting. And even then, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I don't have a dream job now. Just kind of piecemeal here, here, here. As to your question, what is restoration? I think it is recognizing how we have been a detrimental force overall thus far and listening, trying to understand as much as we can the complexity of the ecosystems around us, not just for the services they provide so that we can survive and thrive, but for their inherent value, the lessons they have to teach us. So doing what we can to recognize we are part of these ecosystems and fulfilling a role to help guide these ecosystems where we've been detrimental onto a sustainable trajectory moving forward, not as controllers, 
not as decision makers, but how can we be participants in these ecosystems? So what do you see yourself exactly restoring in restoration work? What we messed up. (laughs) We as the problem, human beings. And perhaps also how we think about things. Yes, definitely. (laughs) I think fascinating to think about more of the reciprocal restoration, that it's not just Mm-hmm. The floodplain that we've built on. It's also our own mindset of That us, allowed us to do that. Yes. Us first the ecosystem and ecosystems as just providing a service or as one or two dimensional when mm-hmm. there are communities within communities that we still don't fully understand. So I think it's so wonderful to describe many volunteers I'm able to work with who absolutely will save Mother Earth from ourselves. met Brendan Fernandez, a recent selection to the Whitney Biennial. Fernandez dished on the Biennial selection process, his background as a ballet dancer, and the criticism over the Biennial itself. Bad at Sports airs Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Well, I've been holding the secret for a long time, so I'm really happy that I can share now with everyone. Um, I'm going to be part of the Whitney Biennial 2019, and I'm um, super excited that, yeah, we can share it and talk about it, and um, now, yeah. I know, and now this is like First exclusive interview. I'm so curious because it is such a secretive process seemingly from the outside and then like an explosion of publicity. Yeah, totally. Um, what is that? What is the lead up like? Like do they <laughs> do the curators come and visit you like under the cover of darkness? Yeah. Is it- <laughs> kind of. You know, no. the the process was one that was you know, I did the Master in Form at the Graham Foundation last uh, January of 2018 uh, solo show, um, and the curators um, came and saw that show. So they secretly saw it. They secretly saw it, did but you... they met. They did meet with me. So you knew that they were. They went to. the So Graham. I knew there was an interest in um, in the work, my practice in general, um, and then kind of silence. And then you're kind of like, okay, now what? You know. And of course, they're doing their thing. It also happened January 2018. So I was wondering, since I we're going to talk about Master Informed, but that show was not like so long ago. But, no, exactly. But quite a while ago. Um, and then you know, I found out early that I was in the biennial. Um, I found out in like June. That's awful. So I've been holding the secret <laughs> since June. <laughs> so yeah. So it actually even sometimes I think about you know like. Like, t- I'm like, can I tell you guys? Like, are we allowed to talk about this? But yeah, obviously, it's in the press now. It's in the public um, uh, zone. You know, the artists have all been announced. Um, but I've been holding it since since June of 2018. It was like pretty difficult. Wow, that's well, and 
I don't know that it, it can't be that difficult because between Master and Farm and now, it's I'm going to count in my brain that you've completed like three big projects, including one on the High Line. Sure. So I'm busy. That, I'm yeah, definitely, so I'm definitely like, busy. Um, so and it's I not mean, like you're like people are like, what are you up to? And you're like, oh, I have one thing to tell you. No, yeah. for sure. And it, But it's just this thing. It was like this gestation pr- process where I'm like, okay, like it was conceptual. Now that it's like kind of real because um, I can talk about it is a different kind of uh, sensation. Um, well, so it was silence and then in June they were like, you're in. Yeah, the, it was crazy. I got a, a text message, not a text message, sorry, an email. <laughs> no. an the e- best. An, yeah. an email from um, a curatorial assistant and said, can we Skype you? And I was like, okay, well, maybe. I'm like, when? They're like 10 minutes. And I was like, sure. So mm-hmm. I got went on Skype and I got this little like, you know, ping saying like the Whitney Museum of American Art wants to be your friend. <laughs> and I was like, this is this is bonkers. So I was like, I'm like, and in my head, I'm thinking, you know, still early in their process, you know, they probably want to ask me about like, what have I been working on? Like, where am I now with other projects? I had given, even though they saw Master in Form, we, sh- I was showing them other projects. Of course, I did like, give I did, like, them, like, them options. Yeah, yeah, options. I'm like, come on, I'm, I, I need this. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I skyped, it was like the curatorial team, and I was like, hello, and then, and then I'm kind of having like this small talk, but in my head, I'm like. Why are we doing this? Like, I need to know what's happening right now. Right. And um, they were like, you know, we want to invite you to be part of the Whitney Biennial. And I literally kind of was like, just like, like, just stood there. They're like, so yes or no? And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, I think my body's telling you what it's saying. They're like, we need a verbal. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to another edition of News from the Service Entrance. I'm Mario Smith, and today I'm with the 19th declared candidate for the mayor of Chicago, Mr. Kyle Seismankowski. Kyle, may I call you Kyle? Of course, Mario. Kyle, you have an unusual platform for someone seeking the mayorship of this city. Your Undertown First platform is already being called one of the most controversial in the entire race. Some are saying you're sowing division in the city. No, 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 that's completely untrue, Mario. The fact is that for too long, Undertown has been ground under the heels of Chicagoans. In the that's case a of... fairly explosive statement, Mr. Seismikowski. No, it's true. Undertown is literally right under this very studio. You can get to it by going to the Copro's basement. Oh, I, I didn't know that. That's what my campaign is about. Education, vaccination, sedation. Still, I'm having a hard time squaring this with your call for a wall. Listen, Mario, as residents of Undertown understand, our retaining walls are collapsing. Bridgeport is pouring down upon us, and soon we'll be nothing more than a receptacle for empty wonton wrappers and aluminum. So your slogan, Build That Wall, is about saving little Bill's house near Diaper Hill. But what about all the stuff about Hillary Clinton? I mean, her emails, that pants. Jess, where is he getting all this? Oh, what are you talking about? Kyle's wearing a tie. He's bathed. He's actually making sense. Usually the skit is a five-minute word salad. Well, shame on you, Jamie, for not being more supportive. Maybe he's turning over a new leaf, okay? Maybe Kyle's finally achieving his full potential. Maybe it's his new batch of lump and bubbles. Lump and bubbles? That... Toxic brew made out of laundry soap? This is my favorite bit. Are you trying to say you're the progressive candidate? I can completely progress. Every day I go from point A to point B, and like every other Chicagoan, I put one foot in front of the other, and my pants go on one leg at a time. Boom. Focus, tested, By whom? I wrote it on an eye chart at Pearl Vision. I gotta say, Mario looks pretty confused. That's a terrific start. 
the one thing I'm having difficulty with is uh, your penchant for nicknames. Some people might think that referring to the other candidates by names such as Neil, Salesforce, Griffin, and Paul Walrus are demeaning to the process. But that's not Paul's name. Are you sure about that? Check your face. And your Arm the Kids rescue plan for the school system is simply bizarre. No, it's not. You're referring to my go-out-on-a-limb program. It's about keeping babies safe, Mario. I believe children should have access to arms. How else are they going to use monkey bars, what have you? Mr. Seismikowski, why do you even want to be mayor? That's a good question. First, I heard the job pays a salary, which is impressive. And there are many opportunities for me to make much, much more money. Such as? Well, there's wearing a wire, naming buildings. Uh, I heard about parking meters. Parties Seriously, Jess, what's going on? I already told you, I don't know. Why are you always blaming me? No, with, with Kylie, starting to spew bubbles out Oh, no, 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 no. Hang on, I, I gotta get in there. Is everything okay, Kyle? You, you look a little flushed. Kyle, Kyle, hey, Kyle, 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 here, just drink this up. Tasty lump and bubbles. Excuse me, who are you? I, I'm, I'm his campaign manager. Now, Kyle, just drink it. Ah, the bubbles. What is in that stuff? Uh, nothing untoward. It's just a healthy cocktail no more brain of natural no brain-supporting <laughs> seaweed and stuff. Uh. Tastes like ketamine and Tide. The brain bubbles. Huh. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, they say when the you're starting side. out, you should just dose who you know. But you're right. I mean, I don't think I have the stomach for politics. And that apparently concludes a very bizarre interview with mayoral candidates Kyle Seismikowski. Mikhaila, he doesn't have a chance in hell. Actually, Seismikowski is already pulling more support than half the field. He's well above Lightfoot and Ballas and is making a serious run at Chico. And my phone is blowing up. How is that possible? People are looking for an outsider, even a hallucinating bum. Excuse me, Mario. I got to go talk to Mr. Seismankowski. Kyle, wait up. Is Kyle Seismankowski the future of Chicago? This week on The Trump Diaries, Manafort gets seven and a half years, Michael Cohen sues Trump, Trump is pictured with a woman tied to a major human trafficking case in Florida, Trump sends a divisive budget to Congress, the Senate rebukes Trump twice, and New York State looks into money laundering by Trump. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 777, March 7th. Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign chair, was sentenced to less than four years in jail in the first of two cases against him. That sentence was far less than the 19 to 24 year prison term recommended under federal sentencing guidelines. Manafort will also be sentenced later this week on a separate charge. Manafort's sentence in this case was called absurdly low and held up as an example of how white collar criminals escape strong sanctions. Rudy Giuliani said that attorneys for several people have reached out about presidential pardons for their clients. Giuliani refused to say who. Meanwhile, Michael Cohen sued the Trump Organization, saying the company owes some $1.9 million to him in legal fees. The Trump Organization promised in July 2017 to pay Cohen's legal bills, but stopped in June 2018 after Cohen began cooperating with federal prosecutors. The Senate confirmed a 37-year-old Washington lawyer, Allison Rushing, for a lifetime appointment on a federal appeals court. Rushing, who clerked for an anti-LGBTQ group that has been labeled a hate group by Southern Poverty Law, drew strenuous opposition. 
all 53 vote Republicans voted to confirm her. Rushing has only tried four cases in her career and is not licensed in North Carolina, where the circuit she has been nominated to sits. The group she clerked for, the ADF, supports the reclimatization of homosexuality in the United States, fought for state-sanctioned sterilization of trans people abroad, and linked homosexuality to pedophilia. Former Chief of Staff John Kelly called Trump's border wall a waste of money and added that migrants coming to this country, quote, overwhelmingly are not criminals. Kelly added that the 18 months he spent as Trump's chief of staff were his least favorite. The Democratic National Committee will not allow Fox News to host any of its 2020 presidential primary debates. DNC Chairman Tom Perez cited a New York story last week that detailed how Fox has become a propaganda vehicle for Trump. Mitch McConnell said he would not bring an electoral reform bill to the floor, calling it, quote, offensive to average voters. That bill called for automatic voter registration, early voting, the endorsement of D.C. as a state, and independent oversight of House redistricting. McConnell did not explain how this was offensive, but he has been dead set against any reforms to campaign financing or voting for his entire career. Day 778, March 8th. Trump tweeted that Michael Cohen directly asked him for a pardon, was told no, and then lied about it during congressional testimony. Trump tweeted, quote, bad lawyer and fraudster Cohen said under sworn testimony he never asked for a pardon. His lawyers totally contradicted him. He lied. Additionally, he directly asked me for a pardon. I said no. He lied again. He also badly wanted to work at the White House. He lied. Cohen replied in a tweet of his own, just another set of lies from Trump. Trump's inaugural committee accepted tens of thousands of dollars from shell companies owned by foreign contributors and others with foreign ties. The shells gave a total of $100,000 to his campaign. At least one donor was explicitly barred under U.S. law from making donations of any kind to political groups. Trump falsely claimed the judge in the Manafort trial had exonerated him. That judge said that Manafort, quote, was not before this court for having anything to do with collusion with the Russian government to influence this election. Trump twisted those words and said he was, quote, very honored by the judge's statement and that he feels very badly for Manafort. The White House rejected a House request to interview former Deputy Counsel Stefan Passantino. Passantino represented Trump to federal ethics officials looking into hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels. However, a White House source leaked documents related to Jared and Ivanka's security clearance to the House Oversight Committee. Trump had previously refused to provide those documents. Trump bizarrely tried to persuade Republican donors not to trust a video where he called the CEO of Apple, Tim Apple. Trump told the donors he actually said Tim Cook Apple really fast. Later, Trump claimed he intentionally said Tim Apple instead of Tim Cook as an apple as an easy way to save time and words. As for Tim Cook, he changed his Twitter profile subsequently to Tim Apple. The U.S. economy added just 20,000 jobs in the last quarter. Unemployment fell from 3.8 from January's 4%. Day 779, March 9th. The founder and one-time owner of a spa implicated in a human trafficking ring was pictured with Trump at a Super Bowl watch party at Mar-a-Lago. Li Yang owned the Orchids of Asia Spa, which has been implicated in the arrest of Patriots owner Robert Kraft. Kraft has been charged with two counts of soliciting prostitution. Yang has not been charged. The Miami Herald first discovered that photograph. Yang, who now runs a consultancy group, claimed on her website she offered the opportunity to interact with the president, the minister of commerce, and other political figures in America. This appeared to be true. Yang arranged for a group of Chinese business people to attend a paid fundraiser for Trump in New York City in 2017. Yang also donated $42,000 to Trump. Yang's website has also claimed it has, quote, arranged taking photos with the president and could facilitate a White House and Capitol Hill dinner. 
More damagingly, Yang has been linked to senior figures in the Chinese government. Those links have fueled speculation that Yang used her spa business to lure American businessmen to gain compromising material on them. In a related story, a classified report from the Navy said its contractors and subcontractors are under cyber siege by Chinese hackers. China is said to be exploiting critical weaknesses in their systems that threaten the U.S.'s standing as the world's top sea power. Immigration's Customs Enforcement is detaining more than 50,000 people that it claims are undocumented immigrants. That is an all-time record. Day 780, March 10th. Trump claimed that the Democrats hate Jewish people during a fundraiser at Mar-a-Lago. Trump claimed the Democrats were, quote, the anti-Jewish party and claimed that he would, quote, be at 98% in the polls if he were to run to become the Prime Minister of Israel. Trump had notably referred to the far-right protesters in Charlottesville, Virginia, who chanted anti-Semitic slogans as good people. A judge has ruled that Betsy DeVos cannot delay implementing a rule that requires states to address racial disparities in special ed programs. DeVos tried to delay the rule by two years, a judge ruled that was, quote, arbitrary and capricious. The U.S. is maintaining a secret database of activists, journalists, and social media influencers with ties to migrant caravans. Customs and Border Patrol officials have been tracking and flagging these people for screening at the border. Some of the people have a large X over their photo, indicating that they have been arrested, interviewed, or had documents revoked. Creating intelligence is outside the remit of the Border Patrol and is illegal. Nancy Pelosi took away a perk for Vice President Mike Pence by shuttering his office in the House. Republicans had given Pence a first-floor office in the U.S. Capitol. Day 781, March 11th. Trump set a budget to Congress that demanded billions of dollars for a border wall funded by savage cuts to social safety nets and environmental protection. It was immediately dismissed as dead on arrival. But signaling he intends to reignite a partisan fight over a wall, he asked for $8.6 billion while cutting domestic programs by $2.7 trillion over 10 years. That would be higher than any administration in history. He called his $4.75 trillion budget the budget for a better America also increased military spending by 5%, far in excess of what the Pentagon requested, while cutting domestic discretionary spending by 9%. He asked to cut the State Department by 23%, the U.S. and Drug Administration by 15%, and the Environmental Protection Agency by 31%. The deficit under Trump stands at $22 trillion. Mick Mulvaney called the budget, quote, a return to fiscal sanity. Meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi said that Trump is just not worth impeaching. Pelosi said, quote, impeachment is so divisive to the country that unless there's something so compelling and overwhelming and bipartisan, I don't think we should go down that path because it divides the country and he's just not worth it. Trump was named the winner of his own golf club championship despite not playing in it. A man named Ted Virtue actually won the 2018 Trump International Club Championship title, but Trump challenged him to a nine-hole game, which he won. Trump then proclaimed himself the champion of his own tournament. Day 782, March 12th. The New York Attorney General's office has opened a civil investigation into four major Trump organization projects, including a failed effort to buy the NFL Buffalo Bills. Deutsche Bank and Investors Bank have been subpoenaed for records related to those projects and the attempted purchase of the NFL team in 2014. That inquiry has been spurred by testimony from Trump's former lawyer who said under oath Trump inflated his assets in financial statements and provided documents to back up those claims. The U.S. pulled all diplomatic personnel from their embassy in Venezuela. The State Department said, quote, the presence of U.S. diplomatic staff at the embassy has become a constraint on U.S. policy. Venezuela is continuing to suffer from a crippling power outage that the government has blamed on American sabotage. Observers say it is more likely due to a lack of investment and maintenance in their hydroelectric dams. The attorney who negotiated hush money payments on behalf of Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal said prosecutors implied to him that Trump was part of a criminal conspiracy. 
Keith Davidson said he sat down with the special counsel for over 15 hours, during which, quote, it became clear to him that prosecutors believe the hush money payments were part of an effort to save Trump's presidential campaign. That is a violation of campaign finance laws. Trump moved to close all 21 international field offices owned by the U.S. Immigration Service. Closing overseas offices is a move to make it more difficult to apply to emigrate to the United States. England's parliament again failed to approve Prime Minister Theresa May's plan for Brexit, plunging that nation into doubt over whether or not it can actually leave the European Union. Trump supports Brexit. May's latest and final proposal went down by nearly 150 votes. That leaves just 17 days before the deadline for leaving the European Union. The nation is now likely to call for an election or a second referendum. Trump bizarrely tweeted that planes are, quote, becoming far too complex to fly after the crash of a Boeing 737 MAX 8 in Ethiopia. Quote, I don't want Albert Einstein to be my pilot. I want great flying professionals that are allowed to easily and quickly take control of a plane. Boeing's CEO reportedly called Trump at the White House in an effort to pressure the FAA to keep the planes in the air. So far, the United States is the only nation not to ground the model in the wake of two crashes involving that plane. Day 783, March 13th. Paul Manafort was sentenced today to an additional 3.5 years for violating a foreign lobbying law and committing witness tampering. U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson gave him a combined sentence of more than seven years for tax and bank fraud and conspiracy in two cases brought by the special counsel. Jackson accused Manafort of spending, quote, a significant portion of his career gaming the system. He is now serving the longest sentence for anyone that has been ensnared in Mueller's probe. Manafort was then charged in New York with mortgage fraud and more than a dozen other state felonies in an effort to ensure he will face prison time if Trump attempts to pardon him. News of that indictment came shortly after Manafort was sentenced. Trump announced suddenly the USA was grounding Boeing's 737 MAX aircraft, reversing an earlier decision made by American regulators. The FAA had resisted calls to ground the plane, even as safety regulators in some 42 countries had banned flights by the jets. Prime Minister Theresa May lost big again in her attempt to extricate the United Kingdom from the European Union. Lawmakers rejected any attempt to leave the EU without a deal. The chance of the United Kingdom remaining in Europe has now dramatically increased with the vote as the EU has warned Britain it will not extend leaving indefinitely. The Justice Department is investigating whether a 100,000 donation to the Trump Victory Committee came from a Malaysian businessman who is a fugitive. He is alleged to be at the center of a global financial scandal. That would be a major campaign finance violation. Former Acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker, quote, did not deny the president called him to discuss the Michael Cohen case and personnel decisions in the Southern District of New York during a closed-door meeting yesterday with the leaders of the House Judiciary Committee. Quote, Whitaker was directly involved in conversations about whether to fire one or more U.S. attorneys and whether the Southern District of New York, quote, went too far in pursuing the campaign finance case involving Trump. That would constitute obstruction of justice. Michael Cohen produced an email from Rudy Giuliani in which Giuliani reassured Cohen that he could sleep well tonight because he had friends in high places. Cohen said it corroborates his claim that a pardon was dangled before him before he decided to cooperate with federal prosecutors. And Trump, out of thin air, accused the media of doctoring photographs to suggest that Melania Trump employs a body double when she has to appear with Trump at public events. It is completely unclear what Trump is referring to, but the TV show The View had made a joke about Melania's appearances with Trump earlier in the day. Day 784, March 14th. The Senate voted 54 to 46 to halt support for a Saudi-led war against Yemen. The United States has been supplying money and weapons to the Saudis in support of that kingdom's bombing campaign against Houthi rebels in Yemen since 2015. The vote is a rebuke to Trump's continuing support for Mohammed bin Salman in the wake of the killing of Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. 
Trump is expected to veto that measure. Also, the Senate passed a bill ending Trump's national emergency declaration at the southern border. Trump said he will veto this bill. Congress does not have the votes to override this veto either. The House overwhelmingly voted in a partisan fashion to urge the Justice Department to publicly release the entirety of the special counsel report into Russian election interference. The final vote count was 420 in favor, with no one voting no. Four lawmakers voted present. Adam Schiff said that Russians may have laundered money through the Trump Organization. Schiff said the House committee is actively examining if Trump, quote, is compromised by a foreign power. And Trump intervened in UK's Brexit debacle at the urging of Nigel Farage. Trump tweeted, quote, My administration looks forward to negotiating a large-scale trade deal with the United Kingdom. The potential is unlimited. He was reportedly lobbied by Farage, who was the former UKIP and Leave campaign leader. Farage supports leaving the E without a deal. He reportedly accepted money from Russia during that campaign. Finally, a top U.S. official told a group of fossil fuel leaders that Trump soon will open the Atlantic for oil and gas development. The official said it is easier to work on such big projects because Trump is skilled at sowing, quote, absolutely thrilling distractions. Joe Balash, who is the Assistant Secretary for Land and Minerals Management, said, quote, one of the things that I have found absolutely thrilling in working for this administration is the president has a knack for keeping the attention of the media and the public focused somewhere else while we do all the work that needs to be done on the behalf of the American people. These are the Trump Diaries. I-94 chatted with Marissa Meyer, author of the short story collection, Rag. Meyer discussed why she is never lonely, her love of horror films, and why MFA programs are grossly overrated. I-94, Lumpin' Radio's books and literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Maurice, first of all, uh, tell us a little bit about why you gravitated toward this subject matter in the first place. It's funny, when people ask you questions about your book... You, I've answered this question so many times. Right. <laughs> and it's always the same answer. So to me, it sounds boring, but I am a twin. I'm an identical twin. And I don't know what loneliness is. Never experienced it. And I think most of the people that I know, if I ask them what it, what is their most common experience of being in the world, people will say that they, they feel lonely. They feel disconnected from each other. Or... They're constantly engaged in a search for their soulmate or someone to understand them, et cetera, et cetera. And as a twin, I don't know what it feels like to be engaged in that kind of search. And I think as a writer, I'm interested in things that are scary, that scare me. And loneliness scares me the most out of anything that I can imagine. Hmm. And I think a lot of violence comes out of loneliness. We talk about the, how disconnected we are as a society you now a lot on the show just with you know, social media, the technology and things like that, which are supposed to bring people together, but it really... But it doesn't. It doesn't, you <laughs> yeah. know, and even just having you on the show today, you know, a lot of the times we have people on the phone, it's not the same, you know, like we got to talk before the show, probably chat a bit after the show, and it's just, uh, it's a different experience being one-on-one with a person as opposed to even on the phone, and not that I don't enjoy that as well, but it's, I, we always... Uh, we kind of have like a rule if you're on the show in Chicago, we want them on to come in so we can interact and, and um, you know, just and doing shows at Pilsen Community Books, I become friends with Aaron and Mary, you know, and it's just like it's a we're all in this together. It's a um, a literary scene, you know, and not a, it doesn't always interla- overlap or interact. And I think it's important um, for the very reason you're talking about, because it is a lonely world for a lot of people. That that really surprises me that you say that that you don't know 
loneliness because you, you you fooled me in the <laughs> stories you wrote, especially the one called the shut in. Yeah, and you were talking about the, liking things that scare you. That was uh, creepy. That's the last story that I wrote. I haven't written a story in two years. Wow. Um, Why is and that? that? Well, because I think when I f- finished this collection and I finished that story, I felt like I had come to the end of what I had to say in this way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've worked on, I've written four books since then, but uh, they're all longer right. projects in different forms. And I felt like with the shut-in, I had sort of reached the end of this kind of exploration about loneliness from this angle. And it was so hard for me to write that story, and it was so... <laughs> like upsetting i still cry when i read it when i get to the end of it there's there's a there's a horror movie i think of where someone's wearing a mask and they're just waving silently i can't think of what it uh no but there's this there's a scene in that story where there's a lot of them it's about a a neighbor of the narrator who never leaves their house and the narrator calls the shut-in it because she doesn't know if it's a man or woman or or what and there's finally this interaction with the shut-in the only way that they can do it is wearing a pig mask, and the the shut-in lets the narrator into the, to their home, and they just have this weird, creepy, silent interaction, both wearing pig masks, and it, I haven't I hadn't read anything like that. Did you ever see Motel Hell? Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's probably where it is. Yeah, the pig mask. That's that, where it's yeah. from. Yeah, I watch a lot of horror movies, and I do too. The <laughs> pig mask. I've always wondered, like, where did this pig mask come from? But I have the same image of somebody. That's where it's from. It's yeah. an important movie for me growing up. I thought it came from Batman because there's a leading Batman mm-hmm. villain, Professor Pig, who always wears oh, the pig mask. I don't mask. know that one. No. Jamie's yeah. a comic I don't book. Know I'm a comic nerd. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, he's the Dark Knight detective. He's a mask and he's got a little kid that runs around with him. Motel Hill's more sure, nice. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I spent an hour in the bathroom with a bucket of bleach and paper towels and a pair of yellow gloves with crud in the fingertips. I wiped the porcelain over and over with one hand while I breathed into my elbow. There was something the size of a steak in the toilet, sunk in the red water, organ-like. It didn't look like a baby, but maybe there was a piece of baby inside of it. An eye, a finger, a face. And I wondered if there was something I should do with it, but I couldn't think of anything. I flushed, coughing. The thing squeezed down the pipe and little bits of whatever it was gurgled back up into the pit of the bowl so that I had to stand there and flush until the water was clear. She'd used up the toilet paper, stuffed long red ropes of it into the trash. There were meat-colored streaks all over the floor where she'd walk in her own blood. And the graffiti on the walls that Jason loved. That's what she had to look at while it happened. The overhead light was dim and the dark blue walls were almost black and I knew I wasn't seeing it all, getting it all, the mess she'd made, but I couldn't stand it anymore, so I left. I took the trash out to the dumpsters and ate cold pepperoni and drank a cup of Mountain Dew. The phone rang. Hi, she said. Hi, it's you? I spit the pepperoni into a napkin. Yes, how? I'm sorry, she said. I know, there was a mess. I would have cleaned it, I would have... It's fine, I interrupted. I could still feel the pepperoni in my mouth, slippery, rancid. Are you okay? Oh, yes, she said. Yes. That's good, I said. Thank you, uh, you know, for calling the ambulance, for staying with me. It's fine. 
There was a long pause. When she spoke again, her voice was whispery but loud at the same time, like she had her mouth pressed up against the receiver. Did you see it? She asked. See what? When you were cleaning it up, she said. Did you see anything? I thought of the black shape in the water, its gleaming sides. Not really, I said. I did, she said, sniffling. I touched it, even. I thought it would be, you know, that you could see what it looked like. But it wasn't a baby, it was something else. No one really told me what it was. Her voice broke off, a little breath. And you... You just flushed it, right? She said. Yeah, I, I mean, you left it there. I, She giggled. No, I mean, of course, it's okay. That's great. You were really great, she said. And she stayed on the line for a moment, and so did I, listening to her. Listening to her, listening to me, and then she made a noise like a part of a laugh or a sob. And then she hung up. I walked home in the rain, slowly getting soaked up to my ankles in filthy water. It was a Monday night and everything was closed. I wondered if they'd given her new clothes to wear at the hospital or if someone brought her something to change into. I, I didn't know how it all worked or who would clean her, how she would clean herself. There'd been a trail of blood from the bathroom to the counter of the booth to the door, blood on the medic's blue suits as they carried her out. I imagined having what she had, a place in my body that could splash an entire room with my insides and then let me walk away. I got an erection, though I didn't mean to. I pushed my hands into the front pocket of my hoodie and rubbed them against my crotch, grimacing, not feeling good at all. When I got to my apartment, my roommates were already in bed and I fell on the couch in my wet clothes and went to sleep. Last week, we were talking about the Popularis Party. Sure. Um, their failure to secure the mayoral seat. Um, do you think that had anything to do with the migratory base, their migratory voter base? Because they really – they pull the best amongst the crust punks, sure. correct? Yes. It's – the Popularist Party is is probably se- – the voter base is about 70 to 80 percent migratory in their ways, which is why there's a popular branch of, of democratically elected individual – called uh, – is known – it's known as a migrating alderman uh, that has come into popularity in, in recent years thanks to the the votes of these migratory – these migratory communities. You know, that's it's, that's interesting because you are Chicago. You're not you, – you are from this area. Well, I am from this area but in addition to being from this area, I also have studied it mm-hmm. immensely. Yeah, no, because well, I – when I came here from – Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't heard of the wandering aldermen. No. Uh, whispered about. No. Yeah. Well, aldermen's alderman wandering aldermen's in Florida would probably be like crocodiles or something. Yeah. Well. What, yeah. Coming here specifically, it was always it was always kind of like this Johnny Appleseed character. But you're telling me it's actually like a real thing. Well, sure. I mean, migratory groups need to have some sort of structure. So. Why not a wandering alderman? Are we doing yet? 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 The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. 
The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.